Sondering's Back in the Mic with your host, Ron Rapitalo. And this is one of the biggest treats I can think of since I've been recording these episodes. My friend, visionary, who is mentioned in my book, Leverage the People Who Love and Care About You Personally Professionally. Evie Walker is a guest on Ronderings, and Evie's brilliance just seeps through everything that she says. And all the times I've talked with her, everything she says comes at this level of conviction and clarity, right? And when you hear about how she's been able to come to that level of clarity, it seems so simple, and yet her immigrant story is at the root of why she is who she is. So. Take a listen. Ronderings fam, live and direct. Very, very excited to have my sister from another mother, visionary friend who's helped me out in a number of regards, mentor, just someone who's trying to make the world better for folks who look like me and her, my friend, Efi Walker. Welcome, Efi. Thanks so much for having me, Ron. Excited to be here. Yeah, really excited to chop it up with you. So we're going to get right to it. And I want you to start, and I've heard snippets of this, and I know you write some, you've written brilliant pieces on LinkedIn, being really vulnerable about your life, especially folks, you don't follow the hashtag, you're black women that Evie's written on LinkedIn. Go check that out. But Evie, share your story with the audience. Yeah, thanks, Ron. I really appreciate that. You know, the way I like to just sort of start off is that I am the oldest of six kids and the daughter, Ooh. I know, right? The daughter of Nigerian immigrants. And Ron, you'll understand this, right, in terms of the the story of what it means to be a child of immigrants, right? There is mm-hmm. a history of sacrifice, a history yes. of striving, a history of being a pioneers, but also oftentimes a history of loss, right? And so that is that is sort of how I think about, you know, my story. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, where I was one of three Black children in the school that I attended. The other two Black children were my brothers. So that made for a very interesting mm. experience. But yeah. I had really strong teachers and parents who just let me know that education was of the greatest importance because they had literally sacrificed everything for it. They'd left everything for it. They'd had mm. to sort of change who they were, you know, for it. And that was a really solid upbringing. But then like fast forward to to college where that was the first time where I had a professor really question my intelligence and my integrity, right? And he mm. essentially said, hey, I don't think you are capable of earning this grade that I'd Jesus. worked my tail off for um, mm. in organic chemistry. I'll never forget it. And that was sort of the the cracking of the veal, the cracking of the, if you just follow the rules, if you just, you know, if you're just the best, if you just work hard, that everything works out the way that it's supposed to, right? And that really carried Mm. me forward to just having to look at the world uh, differently, right? So a little differently than those rules that my parents had taught me. And that carried me forward to, to teaching, right? I had a lot of admissions to a lot of, you know, a law school in one hand, yeah. An option to teach Teach for America, which, you know, surprising no one. There's sort of this running joke in the Nigerian community um, that Yvonne <laughs> Orji has made very popular that, you know, there were like four choices. I could be a doctor, I could be a lawyer, I could be a professor or a disappointment. And, you know, I was not trying to choose disappointment. But, oh but, but I chose yeah. to say my parents were like, what did we, what have we, what have we done? And so 
that was that was really the sort of opening for me into this broader thing, which I know we're going to talk about, um, of just inequities and how that plays out. Right, I was teaching young people who reminded me of my my siblings and who were the same age as some of my siblings. Mm. And the only difference between them and us was that they were growing up in a different zip code. They had been told a different set of things about their culture and who they were and whether that was valuable, whether that prior knowledge was worth bringing to school or was something that they should be suppressing in order to be successful. They were just told a different set of things than I had been told. Right. And, you know, one of I don't know if you know this true uh, visionary, the CEO and founder of Village of Wisdom, where he talks about like the fundamental definition of learning is literally taking prior knowledge and applying it and trying to connect it to new information. Right. So imagine if as a young person, you're yeah. told that who you are, how you talk, how you dress, all these things. Yes. That, that's trash. That's actually not the path to success. That's not what I was doing. Right. But many of my students had been. And so that was a real eye-opening moment and really put me on the path to really thinking about inequity in our country. Yeah. I want to go back to something, Ify, that moment where I might interpret that the meritocracy myth was dispelled for you with that horrible organic chemistry professor telling you that you couldn't get that great, that it was too hard for you, right? Mm -hmm. So tell me about the evolution of what you found out the rules to be for the audience. What have you, what has Evie figured out? What are the rules? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, well, the rules are different for different sets of people. Ah, And the rules are different, not only for different sets of people, but also there are then the rules based on those messages that you then begin to tell yourself, like, these are now the rules I have to play by, right? And so for me, it was sort of this recognition that simply being, you know, top, excellent, et cetera, that number one, that in and of itself was necessary but insufficient, right? That was the first rule that I learned. But then I, then I had to, you know, later on in life learn to like also break that rule too, but that was the first rule. It was necessary but insufficient. The second one is that so much of the ascent into success was actually more about connections and network than uh, anything else, right? So, you know, as I reflected back on, you know, uh, the opportunities I had had, I attended a, you know, STEM camp at the University of Wisconsin, but my mom was a was an RN right at the University of Wisconsin, right? So she was able to say, yes. like, "This is where the doctors are sending their kids, and then you need to do these things." But it was just, mm-hmm. it wasn't. No one was writing the script for her. She was figuring it out, but it was also because she was proximate, right, to certain things, right? Yeah. And also, number two, like I wasn't the first in my family to go to college, right? My parents had done that in Nigeria and then done it again right? Mm. In in the United States. And so I think that would actually bring me to the third rule, right? Which was that the identity formation that I had was part of the other rule, right? Because I did not receive the message that my history and who I was, was something to be disregarded that it was inferior, I actually received the opposite message that even though I was growing up in a predominantly white community, there was this very strong African community, a very strong Nigerian community. Mm-hmm. And yes. every weekend we were 
in Nigerian parties. We were celebrating the successes of aunties and uncles and mm-hmm. cousins and peers and people yes. I was looking up to. So that kind of inoculated me, right? It sort of said like, whatever you're hearing at school, that's that that's actually the make, made up fantasy world. This is actually the real world, right? And so that identity formation was, you're smart. It, would, it didn't even need to be said, right? It was actually, if anything, it was probably more of a superiority complex, right? Like we just thought we were better than everyone else, right? And so, <laughs> and in some ways, I mean, it's actually like one of the best protectors. I tell everybody that the greatest gift my parents gave me is that they weren't born here, mm. right? That was actually that was actually the they they didn't have that. That was not a part of their history, and yeah. so they also were not passing that down they were passing they had the opportunity and the the great fortune a luxury right that other people had not been afforded of being able to pass down a very clear this is who you are there isn't that that message doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with you right and not just in words it was actually just in actions through the people that i saw every day yeah I mean, so much of what you shared resonates with me, right? I mean, I think, so I'm the youngest of seven, Ooh. the oldest of six. This is why we're a good complement to each other. Right. Because you give me older sibling Come advice on. that my older siblings give me all the time. Which I'm like, <laughs> they're right. Damn it. So annoying. Why do you have to be right? I hate it. I hate it. And you have the younger sibling vibes where you're, oh. willing, where you're willing to take <laughs> risks. You, you have the freedom to take risks. Uh-huh. That older siblings don't often have the luxury to take, right? Like that would probably be like the next lesson, right? Like sort of like where you are, you kind of do better, but then that sort of creates space for other people, you know, to do things differently, yeah. right? That's the blessing. Yeah. And so, you know, it's one of these interesting things we talk about. I I, I think you and I have talked about birth order. I've yes, talked about it with a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Yet there are things that what we do that are not typical of our quote unquote birth order. So how have you learned to take risk, Evie? Where does that, what are the stories, where does that come from for you and your upbringing? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't even think, so I don't think of myself actually as a risk taker, right? Mm -hmm. I don't actually. That's what's so interesting is that to me, I just, you know, I think of the story of, you know, I was really, I don't know how old I was. I think I was like five. And my mom was telling me to sweep the kitchen floor. And so I'm sweeping, right? And in any sort of immigrant family, like stereotypical immigrant family, that is not a big deal. So maybe some American family like, what? You made a five-year-old sweep the floor? I'm like, get over yourself. That's very, <laughs> very normal. That's very normal. I'm the oldest. Like, yeah, like, yeah, let's, go. let's go. Yeah, and, and like you take great pride in it. So I'm sweeping the floor and then I'm looking for the dustpan. I can't find it. And I'm like, well, I guess I can't sweep it up. And my mom was like, what is wrong with you? Go and find a piece of, thank you. <laughs> I what? love this story. When you told me the story, I laugh. I'm like, oh my God. Well, you our, our immigrant moms all talking together. There's some like oh. psychic network of oh. like, oh, you don't need a broom. I just put together some all They all have the same sort of orientation. And the thing is like, so for, you know, for audience members who can't, you know, couldn't see what Ron held up, he held up a book, a piece of paper, something to sweep it up. And I was like, you just figure it out, right? Like that is innovation is you take the app, what you have and you use it to solve a problem, right? And that's when I think about immigrants, 
that's what I think of. I just think of a group of people who are innovators by design. Necessity, Mm -hmm. right? My mom would always say necessity is a motherhood of invention. When you need something, that is when you are at your most creative. You are trying to solve a problem. And so that's what I would think of myself as, less of like, I'm a risk taker, but really what is a problem that feels so painful that I have to, I have to solve it. Yeah. So that, that that's that's what I would think of. And so I just have a lifetime of watching my parents just solve problems, right? With what they had and seemingly, you know, with just, it, it wasn't like they were, they weren't like seeking some source of validation. They weren't asking anyone for permission, anything. They, they were not asking anyone for permission to save themselves, right? So if they, mm. if my mom... You know, I have a story of my mom going to a Chase Bank in Wisconsin in some of her earliest days, right before a trip to Nigeria, and she went to go and withdraw money, and they wouldn't give it to her. They said that they couldn't believe it was hers. She had ID. She had everything. This is a bank that she had gone to before. And she literally said, if you do not give me my money, I will call the police. And Mm. given what we think about now, how we talk about police now... My mm. mom, like, but she just didn't have that as a history. She was like, yeah. I'm a full, in her mind, I'm like, I'm, I'm just like you. I will call the police. And if you do not, if you do not give me my money, I will call the police. And they gave this like four foot, 10 inch woman with an accent who was like, you will <laughs> do this thing. And like, that was just, that's what I saw on a regular basis. Right. So to me, it didn't seem like to someone else that might sound like a risk. But to me, it was just someone solving a problem. I have this thing. You were in my way. Get out of my way and give Mm. me what I need, right? And so that's sort of the mentality, right, that I've sort of, when I need to think about how to solve a thing, I have those kind of memories to look back on to sort of Mm. tell me how to to move. So, Efi, you talked about at the end of your story, that one of the through lines that we obviously were going to talk about is solving around inequities, right? And so what are some of the problems you've been tackling since birth, right? And so I, I make this open-ended, right? Because obviously I would love to talk about the incredible work you did before, right? Mm-hmm. But I know that how I've seen you, Efi, that while all four is brilliant and amazing in this, in this thriving talent broker business. I also know the totality of you is not limited to just what you've built to the four. So that's why I asked in this really open-ended way. Yeah, yeah, I really, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I think it's just in terms of how I've tackled it. I think it's just as it comes, right? It's just as it, mm. as it, as it comes, right? I, again, like I have the good fortune of having really powerful models of what it looks like. And they didn't really frame it as hmm. tackling inequity, right? Like, I don't know how your mom would talk about it, Ron, or maybe your dad, but they didn't, weren't using this language that we use now. They, that was not what they were talking about. They that, were, that, no, right? Yeah. right? Didn't they didn't exist in their world. It didn't no. exist in their world. And it wasn't actually this like grandiose sort of, I'm here to save. It was like, I need to have these things be right for my children, right? I need to ensure that my child is in the right advanced classes and you're preventing them from doing so. It is 
Mm. Oh, my child, you're trying to hold my child back and say that they don't know what they're, I'm going to actually require that you give them this test again. And now we're going to do it while I'm sitting in the room with you. Right. I mean, those are the things that I saw as a young person, seeing my mom do that again and again and again. So for me, it was those sort of moments of having to say, wait a minute, someone's giving you a no and that's not acceptable, right? So mm. I think of even small, small ideas, right? So my siblings will tell you that, you know, maybe it was destiny that I was going to be a teacher at some point because even at a very yeah. young age, I was like playing school. We're going to do school. So I have this information. So yeah. I'm going to make sure you have it. So by the time you get to school, you'll be ahead of everybody else. And I think at some visceral level, I, I understood that they needed armor, right? Going into the setting and the armor that I had seen my parents wear was that they were always smarter than everybody else. At least that's how it appeared to me, right? That was the armor that they had, right? And that gave them, to me anyway, it seemed like that gave them sort of the, the moral authority, right? The confidence. It wasn't a false confidence, that knowledge let them know that they could question someone and say, you know what, that thing is not right, right? So I saw myself doing that for my siblings. When that that incident happened in college, right? I mm. could have gone directly to law school, but there was a sense that was like, no, I don't want the thing that just happened to me. And my mom was there as an advocate and helped me navigate that entire process. That shouldn't have never happened, right? But there are yeah. kids who are just like me, let me go and teach, right? Let me go and teach. And then in seeing, you know, through teaching, but I also saw the limitations of that, right? How so many of my kids were also getting caught up in an unfair uh, criminal justice system that didn't treat them like children that never should have, they actually never should have encountered in the first place, right? And so that led me to law school, right? Where I then thought, okay, through law, maybe I can also affect facts change. But then I also saw how corrupt and inhumane and how the balance mm. of justice was actually not tipped towards fairness. It was actually just tipped towards wealth, right? And privilege yeah. in our country. And the more, the more wealth you had, the more privilege, the more likely you were to be found, you know, innocent, right? And that actual innocence had nothing to do with whether you got a, a fair, you know, sort of day and day in court. And so I think what I've seen through the arc of my, from my career is really this, this sort of quest to see like, is there this thing? Is there this tool? Is it through education? Is it through law? Is it through talent, right? Is there, mm-hmm. what is the mechanism by which I can finally press this button and see, you know, sort of justice meted out, meritocracy, played out, fairness playing out. And I think now looking back, I can say that I actually don't think there's this one. There isn't one lever, right? That's yeah. the lesson. That's the hardest, most painful lesson, right? But that there's actually this accumulation of things that can give you um, better odds, right? But that there actually aren't any guarantees when you are a leader of color. You actually can't outmoney it right? You can't Mm. um, out-neighborhood it. You can't degree it, right? Like you can do all of those things and still you can be a Black woman who is still three times as more likely to die 
while giving childbirth in childbirth than a woman who did not graduate a white woman with no college education living in you know a rural part of you know Appalachia and it doesn't mean that she should have should die either right but it's just that the money the education none of those things protect you right and mm. so then like how do we look at the system and try to say this is the system as it is now what would it take for the inverse to be true right and then trying to design a world where the opposite is is possible right and that's now what i'm obsessed with as i as i move forward well evie let's bring your talent broker company afford to the front of this conversation yeah. obviously from what i watched so um asterisk to the audience I was a talent scout with Efi. One of Efi's brilliances was yes, <laughs> word up, was in that conversation we had meeting at Newark at a Teach for America event back in the day, over a decade ago, where we built a relationship. We had known each other through mutual circles and conversations. I'm going to get through the full story because they'll take up the whole podcast. Um, that's for a different podcast. That's for the um, uh, Evie and Ron remix, like B-side. Right? I love that. Um, I would love yeah. that. Yeah. That, that'll, be, that'll be another pot. I'm bring y'all back. I'm like, we're going to do a B-side and go real, real deep, right? But when I was looking for what was next, I had stuff happening where at my that then employer led me to know that the writing was on the wall was either going to get laid off or fired. And when I reached out to you, your generosity, as well as my friend and current employer at Agility Consulting, Christina Leg Greenberg, gave me this gift of saying, Ron, I see you, I hear you, I value you, come work with me. Mm -hmm. Right. So I wanted to put that story to light because not only are you someone that like I, I deeply respect when I think about this the Gallup term that I've been playing around with, understanding my own lived experience, Gapwa, interconnectedness, shared unity. Mm. You demonstrated that to me in that moment. And there's this other Tagalog term that I think can be controversial in spaces because mm. it can have a not so good connotation for like the lifetime of it. Utang na loob, which I've often talked about, dead of the heart. But sometimes mm. utang na loob on steroids means, well, connection of Philippine siblings to family means that you do, and you may be feel, I feel this in like probably every conversation I have with friends who have ailing older parents is mm. this tension between you want to support your parents and do things for them. Yet at the same time, there are cultural expectations that are different from how we have lived here in America mm. that make it really tough to be able to find the right way to say, maybe mom and dad, I can't raise you, like support you and, and and give you the care that you need because not only do I maybe not technically have the ability to do it, the level of weight that is, I don't, I'm going to say, I don't want to drown my me and my own family by having, so I want to have to find this middle ground and yet the cultural expectation, I think of like utang na loob in, in Philippine culture is like, that is such a deeply embedded cultural expectation. It is not even funny. Yeah, It is like, no, you just, your parents are going to live with you hell over high water or be right. nearby. And you just got to do it. You, you just got to figure it out and don't put me in a home because how disrespectful you do not, you know, <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. may, maybe a home would be the right thing for you because you can get the kind of medical care and attention and think, but like, it's, those are such cultural taboos. and be like, won't be happening here. I mean, you just can't. I mean, it's just, yeah, I totally, that cultural piece really resonates. That it, really yeah. resonates. That really resonates. Yeah. We could go so many different ways with that, Ron. Where do you want me to 
what what thread do you want me to pull on? Well, let's go on the original thread and we'll, we'll, we'll go the cultural thread in a second. But I'm curious when you built a four, what were you trying to design for? Mm. And what has been that journey to not only design for it, but what have been some of the roadblocks, challenges, and things you've learned, right? Because here's my other asterisk. I will say this unapologetically. There are very few search firms that I have deep respect for. And one of the things that I've learned is the way that I've been on the inside of the way you do your business. I know that where your heart and the systems that you built and the people that you've gotten through for and the people that have worked with you care about the things that you and I care about, which is dismantling white supremacy and the isms and racism and understanding that if you don't design for a different outcome, we're all doing the same thing every other search firm does, frankly, right? right? And so I just also wanted to call that out. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. So, I mean, look, it's it wasn't even that, um, it's so interesting, right? I've been thinking a lot about this because I'm gonna talk about like who we were designing for and who I was designing for, but also the cost of that. Right. There's a cost of mm. that. We don't talk enough about the cost of that when you are proximate to a problem. Yeah. But there's a cost to the entrepreneur. There's a cost to to doing that. And that's something that I've observed for myself, but also for people who are on the front lines doing the work. Mm. We don't talk enough about it. And I think that's something that we just need to we need to I want to make sure I raise that up in this conversation. But yeah. for me, it was really just sort of this um, you know, I'd had this fascination with talent because it was, again, something that I just wanted to understand. And I think that is a very common thing when you are um, an immigrant, but also a child of immigrants. You become, you get a PhD in observation or survival, <laughs> right? Amen to it's that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How do the rules work here, right? How do I get what I need here? And I couldn't understand how certain people were getting certain jobs. Even when I was an executive, you know, sort of like in a middle management role in a big nonprofit, I couldn't understand like, this person got an executive director position, but they only had two years of experience. But this black woman over here has three degrees, has been an ED before, they're putting her through more hoops. Like, what am I missing, right? And it's sort of these one of these things where you look at it every which way. You try to make a math problem makes sense. And it doesn't end up making sense. And, you know, I had this interesting experience where I left the organization where I was working. I didn't know what I was going to do next. Yeah. You know, my husband and I had intentionally planned our world so that we, you know, only lived on one person's salary intentionally so that we could always have that freedom to leave a job, if a job needed to leave you, whatever the situation was, you had that freedom. And somebody called me and he said, Hey, I'm getting ready to step down from my job. And I just want you to come and meet the, meet the board. And if they like you, you'll be the new CEO. And I was like, what Who does that? And so in my mind, I thought, what? who does that? I mean, <laughs> I mean who does that? And so I was so shocked. I was like tw- early 20s. I'm like, what? But I guess I had just been like headhunted and also... I didn't know that that's how people got jobs because it wasn't how I got jobs. I got jobs by like, you know, demonstrating, you know, that I had the goods, right? And I just, I couldn't understand it. And so I said, no, I don't really want that, but I'll, I'll, I'll think of some people. And he said to me, well, how much do you charge for that? And I said, I didn't know you could pay that, Ron. 
Uh, I said, I'll get back to you in 24 hours. Again, necessity, right? Uh-huh. Motherhood of invention. Right. And that was 12 years later. But in that process, what I became obsessed about was how genius is equally distributed, but access is not. The reason why I got that call was through the access I had from the job that I'd had that put me out in front of all these billionaires and millionaires and all these executives who then saw me, right, in a certain way, experienced me in a certain way, and so picked up the phone and basically said, do you want this big job? Come meet with us, come shake some hands, have some dinner, and the job is yours. And so once I'd gotten that little peek behind the curtain, I was hooked. I wanted to understand, was this a fluke? Is this just me? Is this like a thing that like people really do? And if so, I've got to figure this out so I can go tell the others. This is how it works, right? Like go tell people this is how it works. But what I actually discovered in the process of beginning to run searches, and quite frankly, to your point, Ron, trying to copy others, right? Trying to copy the other firms was it didn't work for me, right? There was a power imbalance. A lot of our clients were you know, used to treating search firms like the help. And we're used to not accustomed to (laughs) taking advice from a black woman. We're not accustomed to saying, actually, there are real constraints. And if you do not change the conditions in your waters, you will get the exact same results. And no, I am not going to turn myself or my team into a mess because you are unwilling to examine your cultural waters. And until we talk about those things, then we're not the right firm for you, right? So what I was trying to design for Black women at the center to say what would need to be true for us to come into organizations, one, to find the roles, two, to enter those roles, and then three, to be able to thrive and actually do what we came to do once we were there. And so that has been the at the center of what we do at O4. And it means that we, we have chosen intentionally to operate differently. We have increased friction, not removed it, right? We've actually said, you need to think about whether you want to work with us, right? Because we're not actually trying to do every the things the way that everyone else does them. Now, does this mean that we only recruit Black women? Of course not. But what it does mean is that because we're designing with us in mind, that we've decided to open up access, not reduce it, which is what usual executive search is about, is like, how do we exclude people? We've decided to be more transparent, not less, right? Which is typically what executive search has been about. (laughs) Oh my God, gatekeeping, right? right? We've like chosen to like force organizations to say, no, you don't just get to examine people like chattel, right? Mm. If you want to be real about it, right? You know, let, let's like go there. Right. They, they actually have a right, this is mutual, to come in and say, what is going on in your house? Do I want to enter your house, right? All money's not good money, right? So what is going on in your cultural waters first? Am I excited about that? And if I am, let's. I can opt into that opportunity. But if I'm not, then it's not going to be the right opportunity for me, right? And so that is that is how like sort of the genesis of like why, and it was it was really born out of this curiosity about how opportunities were meted out differently, and and this desire to sort of crack the code behind what was really happening in executive search, and then seeing if we could figure out how to 
change those rules. Yeah. So let's get a little brass tacks for the audience. Yeah. I mean, I know some of this insider base, but I also know things have evolved at a force since mm-hmm. I was a talent scout there. Mm-hmm. So when you are designing for black women, mm-hmm. right, and opening access, what are some of the things you'd be willing to share with the audience about what that looks like that dynamically makes how Afford does its work differently than every other exec search firm that I know, including mine? Yeah. So one thing I'll say is like I don't I don't know what everyone else does and we've really never been concerned with what everybody what everybody else does. But what we do know is what I would see is that there was a lack of information. And I thought that was disrespectful. I thought it was disrespectful to a woman who has we don't live single issue lives, right? Many of us are you just mentioned, we have we're wearing the crown of, you know, we're working or we're a partner, we're daughters, we're mothers, we are aunties, we are all these different things. So from my perspective, how dare you come to me about an opportunity and not have basic information that I need? You need to be able to tell me what compensation could look like in full. You need to be able to tell me information about where the organization is going and real challenges and not just high level fluff, right? You need to give me an opportunity to talk to the person that I might one day work with. And I don't think I should have to wait until I get to the end of the process to do so, especially when you know that there is Joe, Billy, and Bob who are getting backdoor conversations and can go around the executive search process and have a conversation with the board member so that when they show up for their interview, they sound like they're already speaking your language, but I don't because I didn't have that internal connection those are some of the things, at least from an access perspective, that we require, right? You have to demonstrate the level of respect that you would for someone who was a friend mm. with other people. And so in our world, we're actually not saying, let's remove all the inequity. We're actually saying, double down on it. But for everybody else, do what you would do for your buddy. Give everybody the buddy treatment. So brilliant. Give everybody yeah. the buddy treatment. Right. That's that's an example of and a, in a what seems like a small thing becomes actually a big thing where we have literally had women who have had some of the most powerful jobs weep actually with us and actually say at the end of a process, it actually doesn't matter whether I get this role or not. It doesn't matter if I take it or not. But what I know to be true is that in this process, I have been more cared for. I have been in the center there has been a container of care put around me. So this path where it is often where you're feeling rejected, you feel vulnerable, you're being inspected, where I've walked out with my humanity. And to us, if people are saying that the end of our process, then we've done our job. There's a reason why you and I often talk. So one of the things I'm going to zoom out for a second, right, that I talk about and shameless plug time. Leverage the people love and care about you personally, professionally. (laughs) Efi, you're one of the archetypes of people in my circle of champions is the visionary. And one of the things I talk about openly in the book is how it's not how frequently you and I talk. It's when we do talk. Mm -hmm. So let me me come back then. So you talking about this creation of of care, of being able to censor Black women, and transparency and access to information, this idea of sharing information you would to your friend to give them a leg up on the process, right? We're going through that journey right now to agility. Interestingly enough, I think this is something that people feel in their bones. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, 
generally across enough identity formations to understand that people deep down understand they've when they've applied to jobs, the ones they've been most excited about are ones where there's been a level of transparency and care, yep. right? I mean, I think these are fundamental human values because those lead you to believe those people are kind, those people have my back, those people will follow through. Isn't that what we all want, right? And it's interesting we're having this conversation of like, within our construct, redesigning what our process could be and redesigning our process, like the thing that I had learned from you that I still struggle with about how we then do it within our context where I work is how do we redesign for the candidate in mind, period, writ large, right? And these ideas that similar to what you said, it's like, wait a second, shouldn't we have transparent information? Shouldn't we share more? Isn't it the service that all of the time, because it is a time suck to be able to have one-on-one conversation, saying the transparent thing means that you don't reach everybody. Surprise, ding, 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 ding. Like, um, what if we actually, and interestingly enough, similar to the clients you get, I think a lot of the clients we've started to get in my full-time role at Agility is I've been doing search they understand intuitively, even if they aren't always quite as excited about in practice, to be clear. Right. And I'm sure the wordsmithing of those FAQ documents are probably, you probably had lots of stories that you cannot share. Like, yeah, I don't want to say, where are you? And people, they're shaking. Oh my God, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think there's a real time, like, of course we want to be transferred. Oh my God, you're putting that in print? Um, what happened? You know what I'm saying? Like, there's this like tension between, I think, organizations like people wanting to do what is right, but then thinking of the ramifications and what it can feel like to do what is right. So how does the four balance that tension? Because I, 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 having worked with y'all and like seeing these things in real time, I remember experiencing, even the clients are resisting. It's like, Ron, welcome to the world. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, I go through the litany of flasks, but like, how do y'all navigate that? Because that is something that like, there are times, and forgive me, Lord, for saying, I just want to choke somebody. I'm like, really? <laughs> really? 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 I'm like, no. And then I, but that's like right. anger translator for Ron. And then Ron in front of someone's like, well, let's step back here for a second. So yeah. curious, like, how have y'all navigated that? Because that is not an easy tension, I, I imagine, to navigate. So we say a lot at 04, when values are clear, decisions are easy. Hmm. And so we spend a lot of time on just values alignment in advance. It doesn't mean that the conversations are always fun, but I think when what we've seen is that when you're asking someone to do something new for the first time, like you like to work out run, the first time, the first time you go in and you know, you've got to do something new, it hurts, right? Mm -hmm. It's painful. And, but what is helpful is having a guide, right? It's helping, having someone who can spot for you, someone who can say, you know what, this load right here might be too much for this first time. And so that is the role that we can play. It's not to promise that it's not going to be hard. It's not to say that it is going to be easy, right? But it is to say, is this what you believe, right? Mm -hmm. Is this the leader you want to be? All right, then this is what it takes. And it's an offering. Are you willing to do that? We're not here to actually try to convert the unconverted. We're not trying to do that. We are trying to, we are yeah. talking to the converted, the people who already believe what we believe. And now it's just about the doing it. And that that's hard. 
that's hard for you and in parts of your life. It's hard for me in parts of my life. So we don't we don't try to pretend and actually have a lot of empathy for where they are starting. It's a very hard thing to do. You are essentially saying to somebody, I'm opening my home to you. I don't open my home to everybody. You want me to open my home to everybody and let mm-hmm. them all see? And like, I have to do a showing. You sold a home, Ron. I mean, like, you've gone to homes. I'm selling a home right now. I have to let somebody come and inspect my home every yes. Friday during an open showing, always. And so they can come back and tear it apart. <laughs> that's that is that's a hard thing to do. So I have a lot of empathy for that. And then the reminder, though, for the people who believe what we believe, they know right? That they want someone who's excited about all of them and that the pain of actually having someone leave because you didn't, you didn't actually share all of you is actually worse, right? Than pretending to be part of those things, right? And so our job, if we're doing our job well, is to frame that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we talk a lot about frame or be framed. A smart candidate would find this out anyway, Right. So you have the opportunity to frame it up front. You get to stand out and be different. Right. And so that's what, you know, a lot of our work is. It's really about working with our clients to do that. But I'll say, Ron, like we've had really difficult things that have been said in FAQs. And mm-hmm. the interesting I read them. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> but, they, but they have, right? Like for your yeah. audience members, I mean, we've had organizations where we've said, look, like there's never been a black woman hired in a senior level role who stayed for more than one year in the last 20 years. You should know that. You should know that it has nothing to do, obviously, about black women's capabilities. It has everything to do with a system that has prioritized and rewarded white men. That was in an FAQ. Now, to some people, that might sound like, like, how could you possibly say that? Yeah. But it was also true. And the mm-hmm. fact that it was said actually attracted people who would have never considered that organization because they were like, oh, wait a minute. They might actually be willing to reckon with what we all know to be true. So maybe this is actually a place where maybe I can thrive, right? And so that that's another way to look at something that is scary is like, does this thing get me what I ultimately want. Yeah. Wow, Evie. I know the last conversation we had, we were starting to talk about, I don't want to say what's next, but that's almost what it feels like. I know that Evie, you're like me, like you have 7 million ideas of things you could be doing. So like, what is Evie Walker working on? Not just a four, mm. but what's Evie Walker working on for what's next in this continued addition of brilliant things that you do for the world? Putting myself first. Ah, say more. That's the number one thing. The number one thing is putting myself first, right? I think that a lot of, this actually goes back to what we talked about before, which is, um, Mm. I heard this from the, you know, founder and CEO of Camelback Ventures, who talked about his, (laughs) who talked about his, sort of his learnings, right, of watching entrepreneurs of color for the last decade. And one of the things he said was that what would, you know, his big question is what would it look like to ask ourselves about, you know, how we support entrepreneurs who are proximate to the problem? We always say that Mm -hmm. being proximate to the problem is, you know, great because those are the people who come up with the solutions. It's true, but we also dismiss and undervalue 
and assume that because they're proximate, because they started a business, that they're fine. But there is a cost to being that close to the fire all the time, right? There's a cost to it, right? So you are solving for Black women and you are seeing the trauma over and over. You are the one who has to have that conversation with clients where they are dismissive, they are rude, they say racist comments, they are insulting. They are insulting you. They are insulting your intelligence. They are challenging you in ways that feel disrespectful that they would never do, right? If you were just your average white guy, that is, there's a cost to that, right? There's a cost to constantly doing that. And then running an organization where you have brilliant brilliant leaders, many of whom are Black women, many of whom are mothers, or playing a mothering role to somebody, and yeah. who are also, who've also faced those things. What does that do? What is the cost of that to a human being? How long should one do that? And what does it mean to go from preaching, right? Because I talk to Black women all the time and I'm always, you know, encouraging them to put themselves first to now turning the mirror on myself and saying, oh no, like you're feeling right now, you're feeling out of integrity because you yourself, right, have done all these things, but are you actually putting yourself first, right? You've designed a life and designed a business so that it worked for your family. You've done all these things. You're going to be, you know, we're moving to a farm, right? Like in six weeks, wow. right? We're, we're going to be a totally different way of living, but what yeah. does Efi want? So that is the next chapter is really saying, okay, what does it look like to design your life and how you spend your time around with you as the number one priority, right? Where I think a lot of Black women would say that they allow their partners to do that. Their partners put themselves first. Raise um, your hand if that happens um, in your household, Ron Rapitalo. No. Yes, it does. Let's be and, clear, you and I, <laughs> constant conversation with my missus, right? absolutely. And, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and then we go to our graves sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's not okay. And so how uh, do we how do we how do we do that? So that's what I'm going to be exploring more for myself. And that will mean things like there will be more writing, there's going to be more talking, more of an external presence, more stepping back, right, from the the day-to-day running of the business. And just like more, more time really leaning into the things that I really love doing. Right? Yeah. That's what the next chapter looks like, you know, for me. Yeah. If you have so much to talk about there, I don't know if I, I think I told you in our last combo, right? So I'll play the game so that everyone is okay. <laughs> extremely aware of like what I'm building towards, right? Mm-hmm. And so shout out to my buddy, Russ Finkelstein, who's also a member of season two of this podcast. If I got all of y'all Voltron members together, it's beast together. I'm like, holy shit, there'd be, be so much fucking, br- I'm like, ah, y'all dope. <laughs> like, I'm like, and I know these people aren't. <laughs> I wealthy, like that's the blessing, right? Mm. But one of the things that Russ talked about in his podcast episode with me and his article was this idea of like building a portfolio career approach. Yes, that's right. right? And look, I will be the first one to say I'm extremely blessed to have a senior leadership role at an executive search firm, a talent equity consulting firm that allows me a good deal of flexibility and autonomy 
with the agreement of me meeting results and supporting people. Like all those things have to be true too, right? I don't get to, you know, freelance and do things as much as I do unless, I mean, unwritten rule, which I've shared with many people inside of my company. And it's like, look, if you do good work, you're just going to be given a lot more space. That's unfortunately like a life thing. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It just is. We can question the equity statement of that. But like, that's just, that's what I've experienced. And I, as a cis-hetero male, know that I, I squeeze that every damn day. I'm always trying to like break rules and like have things be made flexible for me, right? But this idea of like writing more, speaking more, if you I'll tell you and I'll tell the audience, like I'm built, the book and this podcast are also meant to like be support for my public speaking career mm-hmm. and business, yeah. right? And then masterminds, products around what I do well and surprise, surprise, why did I create this podcast? Because it's about talking to dope people in my life mm-hmm. and storytelling that and knowing that, wait a second, all that those 20 years of learning interview people, oh wait, I could do something with that? Right. No way. I'm like, yeah. oh shit. I'm like, turns out, turns out. Right. Turns out, turns right. Out. Wait a second. Oh, there's a and the same care and brilliance that you've used interviewing people, that your 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 a brilliant black female colleagues at a four do, that my brilliant colleagues do, that I do. Wait a second. That's all done with care and transparency that interviewing when done really right from a humanistic standpoint is holding people with care, having them share their stories, their dreams, their aspirations, being vulnerable with you. When you do that well, I'm sure if you probably have stories of people, I, I have way too many stories like when I've done interviews, which has not been recently, people crying to me because there's something like when you bring yourself as an interviewer to a conversation or that I try to do in hosting this, but when I bring my full self, magic happens. Mm -hmm. You cannot have magic happen if I'm like, (laughs) if people saw me on video, we'd be like, whoa, you was really stiff there. Like you can't. And there is, I mean, surprise, surprise, there there feels like there's risk to it. But when I think in my spiritual world, Evie, I don't think of it as risky. I think about it as being able to be who Ron is. And look, I know by design, my own upbringing was putting myself first, right? I'd be the first one to say that you've like, I I constantly have this conversation with Shanita, right? It's like, you know, Ron, I wish I could do things and be more selfish. Like, you know, it's like, babe, you should, we should deal like, we should talk about what that is, right? In terms of like you doing more for yourself. And I think she started to do that. And I think that's for me, like, you know, for us as a family unit, like I'm the first one to say, I don't want to live a life where the missus isn't around anymore. I'll be the first one to say, I probably go three months after she goes. If she goes mm-hmm. first, I'm like, I'm not hanging around. <laughs> I don't think. Yeah. I just be real, right? I just, you know, but if we're closing in on time. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you the other bookend of these episodes. What's the rendezvous you want to share with the audience? Hmm. I mean, I think, I mean, Ron, you actually really touched on it really beautifully, which is, you know, this sort of, you mentioned the sort of portfolio approach to career, which is, I think for most of us, everyone on your on your podcast has a certain level of means, right? So I'm not meaning to sort of say this as a blanket statement for everyone, but for the folks that you're, that are probably listening to you and who you've had on your podcast, we have the tools to create the lives that we want, right? And I think up until this point, you know, it's just really powerful to watch people do that. You know, the the big rendering that I've had is the hardest part is just deciding. 
right? And like people are like, oh my God, how did you do this? How did you do that? How did you decide? How did you know when it was time? Oh, I've, I've wanted to, you know, my husband and I have been talking about let's move somewhere and let's do this thing. And when I ask about why or leaving a job that's really toxic or making that transition or leaving a situation and just essentially changing your life, what I've learned over time is that the most difficult part is just deciding. But once you've decided, there really isn't anything that I haven't encountered resistance. That's the thing. It's like, it doesn't mean that things won't be hard. It doesn't mean that there's not, there's not real work to do. But the right people start showing up, right? The right opportunities start showing up. The right, you start giving off a certain energy, right? That also like allows those things to come to you. Mm -hmm. But the hardest part is deciding, right? And so that is the thing that I, you know, am sitting with a lot these days. Like if I'm seeing a roadblock, really asking, well, did you actually decide? Or did you mm. just say yes? It was like a half-hearted yes. It wasn't a full body yes. Did you actually decide, right? Once we decided it was time to leave, I mean, it was like, go. <laughs> Zero to people were like, what? You're leaving? You're leaving in two? Yeah, we had just, we just decided. House is up, ready to go. Mm. Land is bought, like we're moving to a farm. And that was that, right? But the yeah. hardest part was just the decision. So if, if I were to leave anything, is that as we go about the the business of remaking ourselves, right? We're making our lives, our companies, our situations. You know, if we could, we can just focus on like just making the decision. I really do think the rest falls into place. Yeah, and to take something if you said earlier, which will be the title of this podcast. So let me zoom out. So a yeah. lot of what I do to figure out the title of the podcast is to listen for key phrases and things that I think carry the ethos of this. And so I'll go back to why I think you've been able to make these kinds of decisions, right? And and figure out to decide because your values are clear. One of the things I respect so deeply about you, Efi, from the moment we had that first conversation way back when I could start to like connect the dots on who Efi Walker's values, what Efi Walker's values are, mm. right? And the mm. fact that you, like me, a lot of similarity in terms of the immigrant story, but like living different identities, right? Mm -hmm. Yet come to the same level of clarity that when we are upfront about our values, that attracts the energy of the universe and people to the pathway of where you want to go. And if we're willing to let go of what happens. Yes. Wow. It it is that that part about letting go. Like I'm like, you know, I'm like, where's um, Elsa? Let it go. Let it go. (laughs) Can't reach back anymore. But that like, it is one of the things in my meditation practice Mm. that I say towards the latter end of my 20 minute, I am not sponsored by Headspace, but maybe one day, but I do Headspace like religiously every morning. Mm. And towards the latter third of my meditation practice, I say three things. Mm. Let go. Mm. Let love. Let light. Mm. Inhale, let. Exhale, go. Mm. Inhale, let. Exhale, love. Mm. Inhale, let. Exhale, light. Because what I'm literally doing Mm -hmm. is manifesting the energy around me, which Mm -hmm. is also through people and this idea of Kapwa and the fact that we are so interconnected. I think, Evie, your brilliance is understanding that in your identity as a Black woman, you centering 
your experience, black women's experience is actually good for everyone. Right. Right. And And also understanding, like, I think in anti-racism work and liberation work that um, what I've seen been witnessed to not only in my household, but other brilliant black women I know like you. And I could probably the blessing that I have in my life is probably being able to, like, probably have a whole podcast episode of me naming all the brilliant black women in my own Mm. life. Right. Right. Because they're. (laughs) There are many, right? And I'm, I feel very privileged that I know many of you, you've let your, your heart, your, our hearts intertwine, right? Mm. Is this idea of when you censor the most marginalized, it's good for everyone, mm. and yet the power dynamics don't want that, right? Because as we know, there are the some, the few who are able to take advantage of this and they're the ones fighting the fucking hardest. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. And that's the that's the tension I think that you and I as entrepreneurs, as visionaries, are constantly fighting against. But if it's not this fight, then that's what right. is it, frankly, what is right? That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know? I know you I know you've got like two little girls and I'm sure you think about this a lot, but I know for me, one of the things like when those things are hard, mm. sometimes it's just sitting with like what would I want to tell my kids I did. And that usually makes the decision really clear. What would I want to tell my kids I did, right? That's the future, right? Like that is literally the future. So what's what's the legacy going to be? So if it's not this and if it's not us, then who? Well, Efi, before I let you go, what's something you want to publicize about what you're doing, whether it's the work at a four, other things you're doing to the audience? Yeah, I appreciate that, Ron. Well, you know, as Ron has mentioned already, so I'm the founder and CEO of O4, and we are working to build really powerful and impactful executive teams, right? And we want to work with organizations who believe what we believe, right? That culture is everything, right? That diversity is the path to excellence, not sort of an ad hoc thing that you add on the side because it's it's mm. popular, right? But it yes. actually makes you better. It actually improves your your bottom line. And we are expanding. Um, we have expanded our work into healthcare and also into finance. And so Ooh. we are excited about working with um, venture capital firms, um, especially you know those who are funding in femtech, right, and other organizations that really impact the lives of women of BIPOC leaders and we want to meet you, right? And so even if it's not today, even if it's not, if it's not now, we want to know about the issues that you care about most, that you can build the teams who can help you solve those problems. Hmm. Boy, if we had another seven hours, I'd want to like pick your brain about that because that's some of the same stuff that I am wrestling with in my role at Agility. And there's something that I'm sitting back on, Mm -hmm. titled this episode, when our values are clear, decisions are made. Mm. It's kind of a, a big like leadership lesson, right? That yeah. the organizational cultural values, when we get clear about that, the decisions get made. Now, one can litigate all day about whether you agree with the values or not, but let's be clear, at least when you set your values, at least you then make decisions off of that. And I think part of like the evolution of any organization or company is to ensure that the values by which the organization is setting forth are ones that people are ultimately decided, excited about. And there is a liberatory process that allows for people to give input into that. So therefore, we're co-constructing this together. Now, while that goes slower, 
like in life, just like a good slow cooked chicken adobo that you need to make. Oh, I know that, right? Oh, the meat fall off the bone. Some things just take time, but when you Mm -hmm. let it take time, and that the meat falls off the bone, Mm. and the broth is so amazing, you just want to pour it over rice over and over again. Right. <laughs> you It's my rub before was downstairs. I gotta get. But um yeah. So Efi, such an incredible blessing to have you on Ronderings the podcast. Mm-hmm. Folks, there's gonna be more fire. Um, I can't wait to share with you even more amazing people like my friend and mentor and visionary Efi Walker. Ronderings out. Peace, y'all. I just had a truth bomb shared by Efi. When values are clear, decisions are made. That's the through line of Efi's Nigerian immigrant story. Her parents were able to model that for her. Then she gives the lesson about you know, sweeping as a young girl in her mom's and dad's house and not having a dustpan. Her mom was like, figure it out, right? The value there was figure it out. We do what it takes. And I think Evie's always been someone who has figured it out and has centered the experiences, particularly of black women at the center of how she has made her decisions and the decisions of the organization she's at. So, Evie, you're a treasure. We're blessed to have heard your wisdom today. Ronda's out. <laughs>